A pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. Our guest is Jeremiah Hurley, who is Dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences and a professor of economics at McMaster University in Hamilton, who recently wrote a piece at theconversation.com entitled, The Coronavirus Shows We Should Treat Public Health the Same as Public Works. Dean Hurley, Jerry, good morning, sir. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And this is a very interesting approach that you're suggesting our politicians take a second look at. As politicians in other jurisdictions, and we'll talk about New Zealand in a little bit, already have. But let's boil it down to the to the premise initially. You talk about public health being treated the same way we treat public works. So let's talk about how we treat public works versus the current approach to public health. So what what the premise of the piece really is is there's there's really two kinds of critical infrastructure for society. There's there's what we traditionally think of in terms of physical things like bridges and highways and buildings and so forth, and uh, and then there is what we would call social infrastructure and uh, programmatic organizational infrastructure. And so, for instance, in order to deliver public health services, including, you know, test in, in the current context, testing and contact tracing and being able to, to count cases and be able to know what's going on, you know, we need a certain kind of organizational infrastructure that requires investment right. to build it and maintain it and to create it. And so the premise of the piece really is that right now, governments are very much focused on the physical infrastructure, and that's in how they budget and how they record uh, assets of government uh, on their financial and other types of statements, and and they see those as investments, whereas in investments in infrastructure, for instance, associated with public health and other social and community programs, um, are are treated no differently than everyday expenditures. They're they're not seen as assets for government or for society, and and they're not recorded as such or reported as such, and so. Really, the piece is saying we need, as we emerge from the pandemic, we need to really make sure we're investing in this kind of of public health and social and community infrastructure, because really what the pandemic showed is, right, in the absence of a vaccine and an effective uh, way to prevent it, we've had to rely entirely upon social and economic policies. Right. And, and we really haven't had the kind of, in public health policies, obviously, and we haven't had sufficient infrastructure to respond nearly as well as we could have because we've underinvested in that. And so now is the time to, to really um, reinvest and in, in to ensure that we are properly maintaining this kind of public health and uh, programmatic and social infrastructure needed uh, really to succeed as a society in, in, in modern times. So interestingly, uh, politicians and, and public health policy makers will take a look at, for example, Dean Hurley, uh, a, a hospital. That's a that's an infrastructure mm-hmm. investment that they can count, that they can mortgage, that they can uh, structure uh, in, in a conventional way that they're very accustomed to. However, some of mm-hmm. the activities that take place in the hospital uh, are not treated in the same fashion as the initial investment in the physical structure itself. And you're suggesting that the activities within the hospital, the R&D, the, the vaccine research that's going on and other measures are as important as the building they're taking place in. 
Well, yes, and in fact, and I would even go well beyond, as I say, uh, research and development. Uh, I mean, I would go into, for instance, I mean, a very concrete thing in, in the most recent period. Do we have sufficient organizational infrastructure, and that means people, and that's processes and protocols, software uh, relationships for, to be able to offer testing of sufficient capacity to members of society to be able to handle and understand how many cases we have, count them consistently across jurisdictions, know what the situation is. That, that's, that's infrastructure. That's mm-hmm. the capacity that government has to deliver needed services. And so it, that, that's no different than a building that creates the capacity to deliver certain kinds of services. That kind of infrastructure also represents a capacity. And some of it's literally also investing in people, ensuring they have the expertise and the knowledge, as well as that the organizations have the, uh, as they say, the processes, the protocols, the the software, the other kinds of things necessary to carry out the delivery of these these essential services. So, yes, I think your analogy is right. There is both the physical infrastructure and and then there is these other types of what we would call intangible because, you know, you, you can't kick it like you can kick a building. Um, but it's just as essential and it's just as much represents an asset to society, a capacity to provide services that are needed to, uh, to function successfully. Let me quote uh, just a, a very short part of the article that you wrote. The stresses of the coronaviruses have revealed little noticed cracks in our public health, social, and community infrastructure that has suffered from underinvestment. And I think, Jerry, the most salient example we could cite that most folks would go, oh, right, uh, was with the uh, at the beginning of the pandemic crisis when we noticed the uh, the a permanent health department, the public health department, the Ministry of Health, had uh, dropped the ball on PPEs. They had allowed existing mm-hmm. supplies to uh, age out. They literally went beyond their best before date and hadn't mm-hmm. replaced them when that had happened. So when we were suddenly struck with uh, the reality of a pandemic, we were grossly under-equipped, even from the outset, with the simple basics of personal protective equipment. That was rather they're glaring and, and noticed by most, don't you remember? Uh, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and we, we both had let, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 17 years ago, when SARS hit, we had a wake-up call and there had been some immediate investment after SARS. Yep. And then, as you say, we let, we let that preparation, we let the PPE that had been purchased uh, get beyond its best before date. And and so we not only didn't have the product the uh, PPE stockpiled as as uh, should have been done, we also really didn't have good mechanisms for distributing what PPE we had. You know, we had to come up with all all new protocols and ways to be able to allocate it out to the frontline workers uh, who needed that equipment. Uh, uh, and and so both it was both the lack of equipment and an in- inadequate. Uh, infrastructure to be able to uh, uh, deliver and allocate those that what PPE we had to to the needed uh, to the workers who needed it. So I think you're absolutely right. That would be one 
one uh, really uh, prominent example of some of the kinds of things uh, uh, that that I would be referring to. I think we're we, we we've been fairly nimble though, uh, and, and I'm comparing us not just to the next door neighbors to the south of us, where chaos is uh, prevailing, but we're looking at other jurisdictions around the world that are much more organized uh, than even than Canada was at the outset. Looking in Asia and mm-hmm. South Korea and other jurisdictions, Germany being another one with the aggressive te- testing uh, program right from the outset. Canada did recover fairly quickly. Though though, uh, out of necessity, of course, because the provinces noticed right away that there was this lack of the ability of the federal government to deliver much-needed health infrastructure to the provinces. So, uh, uh, again, necessity being the mother of invention, uh, uh, the demand became so intense so quickly, the feds had no no choice, really, but to respond as quickly as they did, and they got pretty nimble pretty fast. I, I mean, I think you're, again, I, I think you're right. Canada has done uh, reasonably well in terms of uh, kind of after an initial uh, uh, kind of maybe faltering start or slow start. Um, and, and, and I think one of the reasons is there has been good uh, coordination between the federal and the provincial governments in general. It, right. it is a complicated area because of, uh, you know, jurisdictional issues between who, you know, who covers health and public health and so on and so forth. And, but, they've, but they've worked well. But, uh, you know, but again, I would point to the fact that in many uh, areas, in most of Canada, I think we still do not have effective contact tracing mm-hmm. in place. Uh, it's inadequate, and we're now, you know, in the fifth month of, uh, of this. And uh, so I think that's been much, much slower. Uh, there are still areas, um, obviously, overall, I think Canada is, is continuing to improve. And as people emphasize, we have to remain vigilant. Uh, uh, but there are still areas where, you know, getting test results in a timely manner, access to tests is still, you know, much more limited than it should be. Our guest joining us on the line from Hamilton, Ontario and McMaster University is Dean Jeremiah Hurley from the Faculty of Social Sciences. Professor Hurley also teaches economics at McMaster University and wrote a piece in the conversation this week called The Coronavirus Shows We Should Treat Public Health the Same Way We Treat Public Works. And Dean Hurley, one of the things you go to in the article is you talk about uh, the, the way we we think about public spending uh, and there's a bias because we're, we're real good about hospitals and bridges because there's there's tangible evidence of public spending that will last and maybe even put our name on it. Viruses for COVID-19 and other remedies that we look at, we uh, that we spend money on, we categorize differently and therefore they're thought of differently by the people in charge of the spending. Elaborate on that a little bit for us, if you would, please. Sure. Um uh, you know, under the current uh, uh, policies and procedures and so forth related to budgeting and reporting, um, you know, when we invest in a physical, you know, as you say, a building or a bridge or something like that, um, you know, that creates uh, an asset that gets recorded on the uh, on the books of government is, is an asset it now holds, and it's able to spread the expenditures on that over the life of the bridge, 30, mm-hmm. 40 years, whatever it happens to be. Whereas if we spend 
uh, a similar amount of money on infrastructure, for instance, to deliver public health services and intangible. Uh, and that's when I speak of organizational infrastructure, uh, certain aspects of training and so on and so forth. Um, although we have created what we would call an intangible asset because we've created a capacity to deliver needed services, um, that doesn't get recorded as an asset in any way, either in financial statements or even in, in, in many times in any kind of government reports. And further, all of the expenditures have to be charged in the same year that they occur, no different than if you're you know, buying paper clips or other kinds of things. And so, you know, we don't think about them as explicitly and acknowledge in the same way that these two are investments. These expenditures represent uh, an investment by the government to create a capacity to deliver essential services sure. to, to Canadians. And so, you know, I, th- th- that different treatment, you know, creates a very different view about how to treat those expenditures. And, um, and I think for Canadians, are, they're not able to even know or tell as much about how are the government using those tax dollars to invest in not just government capacity, but even broader capacity in society in terms of, uh, of uh, in, in increasing people's ability to, uh, uh, to work, the ability to function well in, in society. And so, it, it, you know, one of the main points is to say we really need to look at how can we better uh, treat and, and classify these expenditures when we go to make decisions about spending, and also then how can we report uh, uh, better on them so that we can recognize that these have we've created assets in society that help us to be successful, especially as we look at societies in which these this kind of infrastructure is growing increasingly important to function well. You know, if you move, as some say, from a, you know a manufacturing industrial society into this you know information-based society, where these softer kinds of softer meaning intangible kinds of infrastructure are are what are really quite they're essential to be to be successful in a modern society. Indeed. Now you cite, and we mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, Jerry, and we're at that point now where you can reference New Zealand, the only country on the planet where people can go to football games, uh, 20,000 in a stadium and have a great old time and not think twice about it uh, because of their management of COVID-19. And of course their isolation, of course, is is enormous, but they have a different Mm -hmm. approach when it comes to public health. And uh, they have something called the well-being budget and reporting process, uh, and you like that. How could that particular approach be applied in a Canadian context? Well, uh, you know, I pointed to New Zealand as, as one example of, of how we might move forward. And, and in that, I mean, they're, they're in, in their budgeting processes, they uh, are explicitly uh, document and see these investments as improving the well-being of New Zealanders mm-hmm. and classify them this way. And then in their reporting, uh, they provide, and typically governments, of course, they report traditionally on the kind of, you know, financial reports, the assets of government and the traditional things that are included in financial statements. But they're also now reporting on social capital, what investments and have they done to build the social infrastructure, the social uh, uh, capacity 
the human capital, their investments in people, in New Zealanders, and their natural capital, with their investments in the environment and in the natural world. And so they're taking a much more holistic approach to trying to characterize and to understand how is, it, how is the government they are investing in all of these areas in creating assets and capacity uh, in New Zealand society, in, in the financial, social, physical, and in, in human domains. And, and, and this is, I, I will say, this is part of a larger movement around the world. Right. In which, in which we're struggling and we're, and we're thinking about how to better uh, document these types of investments. And this is happening uh, both in the public and the private sectors, uh, because even you know, in the private sectors, uh, uh, most, for many companies, their main assets are these intangible factors. They're not the buildings and so forth. And so there is a broader movement to, to think about how we can better capture uh, more holistically, the types of assets we have as a society and how we're investing to build in a balanced way across all these dimensions that are necessary uh, uh, for a successful, uh, thriving society uh, moving forward. Do you see, and we've only got a minute left here, it's a, perhaps not an unfair uh, amount of time to, to ask you a question, but do you, do you sense an appetite in the Canadian approach, because we have, again, out of necessity, we've been forced to be creative, a little fleet of foot. Do you sense an appetite for uh, continuing in this direction and, and maybe making a few tweaks to public health in, in, a, in a positive public works kind of way? Oh, I, I, yes. I mean, I think there's an openness. Obviously, the current pandemic has galvanized uh, a certain type of attention. But I, but I also think more broadly, you know, Canada and, and, and both the federal and, and many of the provincial governments, they are also recognizing these things. They're not, they haven't moved as, as far as some governments around the world. But, uh, but I do think there's an openness and, uh, and a willingness to look at these ideas and to see how, how you know, a Canadian approach to doing this uh, could work. And so, yes, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, we will be able to move forward. And in the, very, you know, in the very near term, I guess part of my plea was to say, we always talk about shovel-ready projects to help with the recovery. Right. You know, let's go build things. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I use the term service-ready because we sh this, is, this is a moment to also be reinvesting in these other areas, even in the very short term, uh, under existing uh, programs. We could, we could be investing in these, uh, as I said, I call them service-ready initiatives uh, in, in contrast to the shovel-ready mm -hmm. um, uh, buildings and physical infrastructure. And so um, that's really what the piece was really emphasizing was let's, let's get at this work and, and let's get going because it's going to be an important part of coming through and coming out of the pandemic and preparing uh, uh, into the future. It's great read, friends. It's at theconversation.com. It's called The Coronavirus Shows We Should Treat Public Health the Same as Public Worth. And uh, it's been written by Dean Jeremiah Hurley from the Faculty of Social Sciences. And uh, Dean Hurley is also a professor of economics at McMaster University in Hamilton. Thanks for joining us this morning, Jerry. It was great to have you on the program. Really appreciate the article, too.
Well, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to welcome back our next guest. Uh, A couple of conflicting stories this week in the Vancouver Sun prompted a call to Dane Chevelle over at Organic Ocean to kind of straighten things out. Because here's the headlines in the order in which they appeared. The first one was the BC spot prawn market is in the toilet as an Asian glut slashes wholesale prices. That was followed a couple of days later by a Vancouver Sun story that said the collapse of the Asian market means more spot prawns for us. So one down, one up. In between the two articles, I suspect our next guest probably had a word with the Vancouver Sun. A pleasure to welcome Dane Chevelle back to the program. Dane, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. And first of all, on behalf of Julie, whom you've just spoken to, and my wife, Carol, uh, thanks ever so much. Dane was a guest on the program about a month or so ago. We talked, and then we will talk more about it this morning, too, about federal assistance for the fishery on both coasts in Canada. And after our, our chat, Dane invited Julie and Andrew and me to go for a ride on their spot prawn fishing boat with Captain Steve Johansson and the crew. Andrew couldn't make it. My wife, Carol, substituted for him. We went out for a ride with Captain Steve and the boys, and Dane, it was just a fabulous experience. Talk about firsthand learning what the spot prawn fishery is all about. Uh, Julie and Carol and I just had an absolute ball. It was just a, a, a moment, a slice of BC. Very few get to actually appreciate up close and personal, so I do thank you for that, and I do feel a little more informed about this conversation you and I are about to have. So let's start with headline number one uh, that had uh, was pretty negative stuff, Dane. Spot BC pro- spot prawn market in the toilet as Asian glut slashes wholesale prices. I looked at that and went, oh my. Uh, I didn't hear anything about that when I was out spot prawn fishing a week before. Nobody talked that way. So where did that one come from? Uh, I- you know, I think it was an overreaction. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I can tell you that, you know, I follow the uh, pandemic pretty closely, and I don't think anybody at this point has a clear vision of what uh, the, the next year uh, or even the next few months is going to look like in, ter- in terms of market conditions or economic conditions. Right. And when I talk to uh, other uh, players in the seafood supply chain, I got the same uh, same reaction, so uh, I, I think it's a little uh, a little early to be uh, making uh, dire predictions about uh, the outlook for the market and the outlook for prices. And as you know, uh, Sterling, from your own experience dealing with uh, uh, the crew on the boat, this was a very good prawn season for uh, um, those that uh, sold live prawns. We didn't have any interruption in terms of demand. We didn't have any interruption in terms of price. And uh, the market responded with uh, um, you know, great enthusiasm to uh, uh, the availability of spot prawns. And we have no reason to believe that that's going to abate uh, now that the season's over. Okay, well, let's talk more about, we'll talk more about the local response. And, of course, it, it's hard to resist. But what's going on with the Asian markets now? Because, of course, China and Jap- Japan and, and other Asian markets have been typically big customers of uh, our West Coast fishery and all of our products. Has the market dried up, Dane? Has it become a little more subdued? Has it disappeared? What's the status right now? Well, there's some mixed signals. Um, we're not uh, a high-volume player in, in Asian markets. We sell nothing into 
Japan or China, but we do sell into the, uh, I would describe them as the premium or luxury markets of Southeast Asia, like Hong Kong and Macau and okay. Singapore. Yep. And uh, what we're finding is that they're they're rebounding and they're ahead of uh, north of the North American markets. Not surprisingly, given what's going on in the United States, mm-hmm. and uh, we're shipping a lot of uh, product over there. And I'm also hearing from some of those players that do container loads to the Asian markets that the Asian buyers are around. They're sniffing, and uh, you know they're uh, uh, very interested. You know, this is food that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know it it doesn't. Uh, ebb and flow significantly in terms of supply, and the same is true of demand. So, you know, they they may saber-rattle in terms of saying, well, they're not going to buy, and then they're not interested. But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, I think they want it, and uh, I think they'll be back. Well, you, uh, when I uh, sent you an email, uh, this sort of caught my attention immediately, and you got back to me pretty quickly, and you sounded a a little ticked because uh, you were worried or concerned, at least, Dane, that this this might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Flesh that out for us. Well, and and that was exactly the term that I used, and that is that, you know, if you believe that things aren't going to be worth anything, it's pretty hard to... um, convince the market that they are but uh, again i don't know what your experience has been i haven't walked in the supermarket recently and found uh beef or chicken or blueberries at you know 25 percent lower than what they have been in the past not prices, a chance prices have remained stable in fact have gone up yep. i don't expect that the that it's going to be any different for uh seafood and we're finding that not just with spot prawns but we're finding that with salmon that people anticipated predicted that prices were going to go through the floor. They're not. It hasn't happened with halibut. It hasn't uh, happened with lingcod. There's been, there've been, there's been a little bit of volatility, but uh, um, prices have, have held up. And if anything, I would say people are probably more concerned right now about the availability of food uh, over the course of the next few months than uh, they normally would be, because nobody knows what impact the pandemic is going to have on primary food production. Absolutely. And uh, just before we take the break, uh, a lot of your business harvesting uh, seafood products goes directly to the restaurant business. And of course, that has taken a pretty sharp hit in the last few months. And we're just starting to see some of that business uh, come back little by little, uh, still with a great deal of reluctance on the part of the dining out public to jump in with both feet yet, Dane. So how has that affected your business in terms of the the reduced demand? demand from the dining sector well when our business uh, dropped off like most uh, seafood uh, um, suppliers almost overnight in mid-march sure and we very quickly determined that uh, both for our purposes and for the purposes of the, our communities that we had to find a different way to get uh, seafood to market so we created a uh, contactless refrigerated home delivery service where you could uh, purchase the same seafood we were selling to the chefs online. It's been an, an unqualified success, and uh, we're also finding now that uh, our food service, our restaurant and hotel business, is starting to rebound. A lot of small markets have uh, taken on these products and, and wouldn't have done it uh, uh, in the past, I guess, again, to try and uh, backfill demand. So um, it's not that bad. 
I'm sure. I'm looking at, at your website, uh, which is a good one, friends, organicocean.com. And you're looking at, uh, you show pictures of your best sellers, and there's family packs with all sorts of combinations of salmon and halibut and so on. Uh, the newest one is the Dr. Prawny Henry Frozen Edition uh, Spot Prawn Tail Pack that I'm sure is probably doing a fair bit of business for you. Business barely brisk with that one, I'll bet you, Dane. It's unreal. We had our biggest day yesterday uh, of our store since we started it, and I think it was a consequence of the of the recent media. People took a look and went, you know, really, can I buy spot prawns? And is the price down a bit? And it is. And uh, they realized that this is a terrific opportunity for the domestic market. Dane Chevelle is with us, Mr. Chevelle is the CEO of Organic Ocean. We're talking about another spot prawn year, and Dane, it's a it's a it's a four star year. Uh, they taste fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what we originally had you on the show a couple of months ago, talking about the uh, federal assistance program that they had designed or set aside some funding for the fishery in both Atlantic and Pacific Canada, uh, and now it's had a chance to either work or not. What can you tell us about the federal fishery package as perhaps it applies to your company or even your uh, people you know here on the West Coast? Yeah, things haven't changed much since we spoke last, Sterling. Um, a lot of promise, um, not a lot of follow-through yet, and uh, um, we're kind of scratching our head wondering uh, if and when we're actually going to see something. Uh, and it's not just funding. I, I would say that probably more important to uh, um, fishermen is access to the resource because the thing is, is that if we don't... Uh, uh, if we're not afforded access to the resource, we don't produce fish. We don't produce fish. There's none in there's none in the supply chain, and uh, we have a window of opportunity in which to do that. We we don't go out in November or December or January, so uh, we're we're getting mixed signals from uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans in terms of uh, what we're going to be able to harvest and when. And uh, um, I would say that that's probably a greater concern to industry than uh, um, funding at this point. Funding is an issue, but uh, given that we haven't seen any yet um, and we continue to get by, um, we uh, live in wait and hope. Well, that was, the, that was the concern when we spoke about this in the first place, just after the program was announced. The concern was that, you know, will this be, it's a seasonal industry, and uh, will this be available to, to be meaningful uh, during the current season? And so far, not a lot of evidence, Dave. Not a lot of evidence. No, we're, we, we've we've got a couple of programs that uh, are in play, but uh, they're proceeding at what I would describe as a glacial pace. Let's talk about the second Vancouver uh, Sun headline. The first one that uh, caused my uh, eyebrows to arch was uh, the uh, story about BC Spot Prawns market in the toilet. Their words, not mine, as Asian glut uh, uh, slashes wholesale prices. That was story one. And then a couple of days later, uh, story two comes out in the same paper that says collapse of Asian market means more spot prawns for us and features a glowing report from your colleague, Captain Steve Johansson, uh, and his crew, uh, who are, are talking very positively about the quality, again, of the spot prawns this season, which is extraordinary, as always. But uh, a very upbeat story. Did someone from, say, the CEO's office call somebody at, say, the Vancouver Sun and go, what are you guys talking about? No, and, and this was completely out of the blue. I didn't even know that that Sun and Province article was, uh, was going to be published until 
still. Uh, I saw it tweeted. Um, so you know, maybe maybe they went to seeking the uh, uh, counterpoint. But you know, one of one of the things that I think people don't realize is that shrimp uh, is the most consumed category of seafood in North America. Some seven hundred and fifty thousand tons of it are consumed annually, of which 90% is imported, most of which comes from Southeast Asia. And uh, our total spot prawn production would represent something like 0.33% of uh, all that is consumed in North America. So there's a great opportunity. And Steve Johansson and Chef Robert Clark uh, realized this more than a decade ago when uh, Chef Clark said, why are we importing uh, tiger prawns from Southeast Asia? Mm Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's become uh, it, it's become as much a marketing thing as anything else. I mean, obviously, it's a local product that is well worth paying attention to. But you know, it, it's a fairly recent phenomenon, isn't it? The whole spot prawn thing. You know, thirty years ago, there were no such things. I mean, there were, but it wasn't a thing like it has become. Has it? It, it? It's all a marketing thing, Sterling. And uh, um, 30 years ago, there was a spot prawn fishery, but virtually everything was uh, exported to Asia. So we're sending our premium uh, shrimp to Asia, and we're importing um, tiger shrimp from or tiger prawns from Asia that are raised in uh, um, swamps where they're taking out uh, mangrove, uh, and uh, they're using antibiotics and um, hormones and pesticides. It, makes no sense at all and that's what the the chefs glommed onto and now i think the consumer market is uh is uh jumping on that bandwagon too especially with the sustainable approach that organic ocean is a very big part of what you do isn't it dane it's all natural it's all free from and uh it's the very best of what nature intended us to consume Talk to us a little bit about Neighbors Helping Neighbors. This is a project that you've taken on uh, in in cooperation with not only with Chef Robert Clark, but uh, a couple of other chefs. Karen Barnaby's name is mentioned in one of the pieces on your website. We work really closely with uh, um, Chef Barnaby. She's uh, the uh, resident chef at the um, Goodly Foods uh, Society, and that was the original charity that uh, we got involved with, and uh, very early on in this program, uh, we donated uh, um, fresh lingcod that we brought in from the West Coast through uh, one of our fishermen, Captain Jeff Belville, and we made 10,000 meals available to the downtown east side. Since then, we've uh, uh, contributed, I think, to three or four other uh, um, nonprofits and charities, and uh, uh, the latest one is a uh, August 13th event uh, um, in which uh, we're going to be donating uh, seafood to something called the Schoolyard Harvest Dinner at Home Edition. They're creating uh, meal kits for uh, Fresh Roots Soil Youth Program. So it's a, it's a big part of what we do. It's part of our corporate social responsibility agenda, and uh, it's been met with great enthusiasm by the media and the general public. Yeah, I'm just looking at the Van Aqua Pack. This is your way of supporting the folks at the Vancouver Aquarium. This whole business of buying packs of food, whether it's a, a box in which the meal is essentially all there for you and all you have to do is essentially cook it, to uh, there is packages delivered to your door has become a, a thing. Uh, and uh, frozen seafood packages delivered to doors or picked up at the stores, it's a, it's a really convenient way to try a whole lot of different things in one shot, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I'm, 
uh, we, we've kind of Amazon uh, seafood, and that is that we've made it super easy for people to order it and uh, get fulfilled. We deliver it uh, to their homes in uh, um, recyclable uh, uh, packaging. And uh, one of the biggest challenges for us was to uh, overcome people's reluctance of preparing seafood. So we reached out to our chefs, and uh, they very generously donated their expertise in the form of uh, chef tips that we publish on our website. And now the, the people like you uh, that are cooking spot prawns or other seafood are actually contributing their own uh, preparation uh, tips. So it's become uh, quite a phenomenon. Organicocean.com is the website, friends. It's a good one and lots of excellent product there as well. Dane Chevelle is the CEO. Good to have you back on the show. My best to Captain Steve and the crew of the Spot Prawn Boat. And thanks again for the invitation from Julie and me. Thanks, Sterling, and uh, we'll get you out on a salmon fishery next. Oh, okay. All right, sure. (laughs) Color me in. Thanks, Dane. We'll talk again. Well, you know, we haven't had a hockey game since the league was shut down in March. Oh, you've noticed too. Right. Well, uh, it's about to change. Uh, In about, what, 11 days, the Canucks play the Jets in one exhibition game before their series against the Minnesota Wild. That will be up in Edmonton. It will be on July 29th. It uh, starts for real a couple of days later on August 2nd. So back here on the home front, while we're not going to be a hub city, we're still a hockey town. And while we won't be able to do a lot of high-fiving and hugging at those uh, social places where we go to watch hockey games, the restaurant biz, the hospitality industry, is in fact hoping many of us find our way with our friends to some kind of, well, hospitality zone to enjoy the return of hockey. Ian Tostenson is with with us this morning. Ian is president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Always a pleasure to have, uh, to say good morning and welcome, Ian. Good morning and welcome. Uh, thank you very much, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thanks. And like most Canadians, or many Canadians, I'm kind of tuned, as you might expect, for the return of hockey. Um, and I have a family member in the hospitality business, so uh, this is a, a lively time for us all. What about capacity, Ian. Let's talk about how people are doing now versus what their expectations or hopes are for what hockey might do to improve the situation. That's a really good question because um, we are seeing relatively uh, strong sales in suburban markets. And so when you get outside of Vancouver and and downtown Victoria, uh, which are really having a struggle because there's no tourists and there's um, these quite a few offices are still not operating. So, sure. um, so from a, from from that point of view, uh, I was talking to some restaurants uh, they're in Coquitlam and Port Moody, and they're almost a hundred hundred percent in terms of their sales are actually better than last year. So there's a lot of demand in the suburbs. The problem is going to be for hockey is will it be people that order from restaurants and watch the game at home because as you say, can't high five because we're going to continue to have to be quite disciplined in a restaurant. It's not in anybody's best interest to go and sit there for three hours in an enclosed place to do that. So then you sort of go, well, patios could play a real, a really interesting part for those restaurants that want to do that, go that route sure. and watch it outside. So that's a good one. And I think, um, but, well, I think the real effect, Sterling, is going to be um, dining in at home. Uh, you know, because I was looking at some of the times, the games, and if people aren't downtown, you know, they're going to need to go to their, their uh, suburban restaurant or their local restaurant. 
or they're going to probably do, you know, skip the dishes or order in and have a few people at the house. So it's going to, it's, you know, we're into an area here. We've never had hockey uh, in, during the summer. So, you know, August and September, it's an odd time for us to do this. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the outcome is. Well, the other part about it, too, is this is not only have we not, are we not accustomed to having hockey in August, period, we're going to get a, just an absolute onslaught of hockey. I mean, we're going to have, uh, on some days, Ian, we're going to have six games, three from Edmonton, three from Toronto. I mean, it's uh, literally the first game will start at noon in the east, which is nine o'clock clock in the morning on the west coast and the last game will start in edmonton at eight o'clock that evening so it's going to be a marathon literally for weeks this i would think is creating a fairly positive buzz in the hospitality biz well it is because anything that gives uh, a person a reason to go out or to stay or to have that extra glass of wine or beer which hockey will do, and that'll be quite interesting. Hockey all day, every day, right? Yeah. So you sort of take your time, go for lunch, watch a little bit of the game, and I think that's what which is going to kind of work in our advantage is that we don't want necessarily people, as I said earlier, uh, you know, sp- spending and just sitting and parking themselves. The restaurant still needs to turn those seats; that's in their best interest. But when you have so much hockey going on, um, I think it's going to be a real, real advantage, and I think it's going to be. Um, uh, an advantage for some of those day parts during the week or during the day of a restaurant that um, they might be able to bring some people in that otherwise wouldn't. So, uh, you know, plus on top is we've got baseball. We're going to have, uh, we're also going to have NBA basketball. That's true. So pick your, pick your spot and sit in a restaurant for the next three months. We'd love that. And of course the Whitecaps are back. They didn't do too well the other night. They're playing their arch rivals Seattle tomorrow. So it's finally starting. The momentum is finally starting to build. And I'm curious about back to the whole, the, the whole no hugs and high fives thing, the premise that we began the conversation with, and that's still really important. I'm curious about what they're saying because you're saying it's busier in the burbs than it is downtown town how tough is it for restaurant managers uh, and those people ian to maintain the rules and still show people a good time you know it's a new reality that will probably be the future i think you're going to see restaurants that will have more space inside of it um or, or you know spatial distance and all the things we're doing right now are probably what you're seeing in the future so um it's it's actually been quite. I think the industry's done a really exceptional job, with few exceptions. You know, they're being very disciplined about keeping the you know, the, uh, the two meter rule between tables and or plexiglass. Right. Utilizing patios. Uh, you will you will hear this week. Uh, we're going to tighten up a little bit and just remind people that when they do go to a restaurant, uh, at this point it's six people uh, maximum. But you know, you so you literally have to check in, stay at the table with the people you're with. Um, if you've got to move around, go to the washroom, you come right back and then you're, and then you have to leave. So we're trying to get away, making sure that people aren't lingering and starting, you know, cause if you, you know, have a few drinks, go to the bar start talking. We don't, we want to avoid those circumstances. That's why I think it's going to be a little bit sterile, if you will, uh, when you've got sports going on. Um, cause we really have to, I mean, that's the very first thing that we have to maintain is, is that public safety. Sure. So, uh, be disciplined, but, um, you know, um, I think there's going to be, um, uh, you know, you've got restaurants right now in Vancouver that are, downtown Vancouver, that are running at about 25 or 30% of their volumes last year. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I think hockey is going to have a, an incremental effect for sure, but I don't think it's going to bring if, if for the restaurants and the, the you know in the Vancouver and Victoria in particular, um, it's not going to it's not going to turn the corner for them. The, the, the difference between what they're performing right now, the number of people in those marketplaces is too great. So you're going to see, uh, you know, on that note, you know, we're going to we're looking at maybe how do we create some festivals in downtown uh, Vancouver, Victoria, where you maybe have the hotels involved, the retailers involved, and the restaurants involved, and and get people circulating back. You know, go visit Stanley Park, do all those things to try to draw people back in the city. But there's no question it's hurting. I mean, you know, it's hurting so bad because you know, no business, uh, quite a few offices are not open, but also obviously tourism. So, but you know. Uh, Sterling, as you know, every little bit helps. That's right. And uh, so we're grateful that there is hockey. And, you know, it's such an entrepreneurial industry. There's going to be some operators that figure out some really cool ways to to attract people and to build build their business that are probably things that we haven't thought about yet. So it's an opportunity. Well, you know, I think you're right. Because, again, this is the, tw- this is the summer of 2020. This is the staycation. This is the uh, explore your own backyard. And BC is just, uh, just a huge, huge backyard to explore. To A person could spend a lifetime exploring BC, quite literally. Uh, so here we are uh, with BC businesses of all descriptions all over the province, Ian, bending over backwards to trying to get creative, to stimulate people to come to their place and have have a look around and spend a few dollars and enjoy themselves. So the restaurant round, uh, restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, no exception at all, of course. So it is yes. going to be interesting to see. And I'm I'm willing to bet, not a lot because I'm not a gambling man, but I'm willing to bet five bucks that uh, y- y- there will be a perceptible, even downtown, there will be a perceptible increase in business. Not, you know, a difference between night and day or anything dramatic, Ian, but I'm, I'm looking for an uptick here. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, those people that are downtown, they'll stay downtown and, you know, maybe go walk at this game, you know, in the evening and stay downtown. It gives them a reason or go for lunch and just kind of watch the game while you can. So, for sure. And you're going to see, you know, hockey, people wearing hockey T-shirts and the right. retailers are going to start selling a little more hockey gear. So, um, and we just need to give people reasons. And when we give them good reasons, fun reasons, hockey is going to be fun. Um, they'll they'll respond accordingly. So um, yeah, yeah. I think we can uh, have yeah. I think we can have fun and be safe at the same time. I think we've learned our lesson. Uh, perhaps you know the next door neighbors uh, with their uh, irresponsible attitude towards gathering in bars and indoors, uh, probably teaching pretty valuable lessons to Canadians. So we don't want to do that, but we do want to go out with our friends and watch hockey. It can be done smartly, right? I totally I totally agree. It doesn't have to be running around high-fiving, you can still have a lot of fun at that table with your six people. And maybe by then, uh, we might see an increase in capacity. We're talking to the government about maybe can we get it to eight people. But we'll just see. Take it one step at a time. But it's the new reality, and it's kind of fun. And people, I'm getting a lot of people saying they actually like the environment because they've got a bit more distance in restaurants. It's maybe not so noisy. They're having a relaxing, enjoyable time. So there's some good things that are coming out of this. And I, we're not going back to, you know, crowded restaurants with I'm almost sitting on your lap next door to you that way. Right. Um, it's going to be very, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And, and I think that people are appreciating this new, new style of doing business and therefore, you know, new style of watching a hockey game, just uh, calming down a little bit and just being with your friends and, you know, you can probably hear the screens is going to be a little bit less, a little bit more tame. Yeah, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Ian, thanks yeah. for doing this. We always appreciate it when you get up early and jump in on the program. It's, it's fun to have you aboard, as always. 
Thanks, Julie. Have a great day. You too. Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the Restaurant and Food Services Association of BC. It's been quite a week in images. We have seen some pictures that none of us, literally no human has ever seen before. Pictures of the sun uh, taken from uh, an angle and a proximity to the sun that no humans have ever enjoyed before. This is a combination of project between NASA and the European Space Agency. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the program David Bergmans. Mr. Bergmans is a principal investigator for the Solar Orbiter Spacecraft uh, ultraviolet imager and he joins us this morning from brussels and the royal observatory of belgium mr bergmans david good morning and welcome to the program sir hi sterling good morning it's good to have you with us talk to us a little bit about the machine that you are the uh, principal investigators tell us more about the extreme ultraviolet imager the eui that you and your team uh, have sent off towards the sun all right, so EOI is a bunch of telescopes that we have been working on for, for more than 10 years, actually 15 years perhaps. And so the, the crucial point is not so much the telescopes, well, how they are built or, or the technology, but the location from which they, they will be imaging the sun. We, we have been imaging and studying the sun for decades from, from the Earth perspective, but we are somewhat at a standstill there. There are things we are trying to understand and that, that just don't work from the data taken from the Earth perspective. So what was decided was to take a bunch of instruments to the, to the let's say, the ground zero of the, of the solar wind, where it starts, and go, go on that spot there and observe it locally and see uh, what's going on there, and, and in that sense, better understand how the sun works, how it creates the solar wind, and how it influences us at Earth. Fascinating stuff, and we'll talk about the campfires in a minute, David, but let's just talk a little bit about the, the actual nuts and bolts of getting these pictures back to Earth. For example, uh, the solar orbiter that is sending these pictures and that it contains this uh, instrument that you're responsible for, the extreme ultraviolet imager, uh, this, uh, this left Earth when? In February, correct? That's right. On February 9th, it, it, it was uh, launched from... Uh, um uh, Canaveral in in, uh, in the US, and since then it has been uh, approaching the sun. And in the last few weeks, we were somewhat halfway between the the Earth and the sun. So and we are, uh, yeah. No, well, okay, so we're about halfway there now. We're taking some absolutely astonishing pictures. Tell us about the mission of the Solar Orbiter. If this is just the beginning, David, what is the end game? What, what, what do you hope, if this is a spectacular beginning, and it is, what do you hope to see even beyond what we're already learning and seeing? That's right. So Solar Orbiter, is, as, as it says, it's orbiting the sun, and we're, we're not even halfway the first orbit, and we're going to make a few tens of these orbits. And the last orbits are gonna be inclined also to inclined with respect to the plane of the of the uh, of the planet. So we'll see down on the planets and on the solar poles. So that's gonna be really exciting. Uh, I think what we want to to find out with this mission in particular is of all these little features that we see on the sun, like the campfires that we'll get to in a minute. Which one of these do matter, actually? There are lots of stuff that is going on there, but that, that never makes it into space that stays on the sun. But a few of these, they must be somehow creating the solar winds, and, and that's what's, what this mission is about. It's understanding those things on the sun that, that make it out into space, that right. use the solar wind, 
and that make the space weather that ultimately affects us humans on the planet. Interesting stuff. David, how long is the mission scheduled for? And here's a silly civilian question for the scientist. How do you design uh, an object, the space orbiter in this case, that's going to orbit the sun so as to be able to resist, I don't know, melting? <laughs> yes, that's, that's, of course, the crucial point no, of, of the technology of this mission. <laughs> uh the, the it's uh it's simple it's a big heat shield so there's a, a big heat shield in between the uh the sun and the spacecraft that protects the sensitive spacecraft parts from the, the heat of the sun now the tricky thing is of course if you put a heat shield in between it's difficult to observe the sun sure so you must make little holes in that heat shield to, through which you can look at the sun and take pictures and so the design of these little holes in that big heat shield, that's really critical and, 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 and difficult because, of course, if you want to take pictures, you want the holes to be as big as possible. But sure. if you want to survive, they need to be as small as possible. So how long was this, uh, um, this extreme ultraviolet imager, this heat shield, this development of the solar orbiter, how long has this been in the works? We're just hearing about it, but clearly this is a years-long project. David, tell us about it. Well, the first time that I heard about it was in 1999. Uh, that was just, at that time, uh, a vague concept, uh, like we, like I'm telling you here now, we need to go there, we need to do this and that. So that was 1999, and it, it took several years before it really kicked off. I mean, the engineers designing really the hardware. Uh, that must be like 2006, seven or so. So we, overall, I think you can say we've been working on this seriously for, for 15 years. I believe you. Now, let's talk about the campfires, because we've known about a phenomenon, David, called solar flares. Even uh, those of us who aren't uh, uh, studying the heavens for a living, we know about solar flares and solar winds. Where, where do campfires fit into that uh, limited knowledge we have of the sun? Okay, so the... The interesting thing with solar flares is that they they span a very large range. You, you have really big solar flares that, that affect even the Earth, and you have many more uh, smaller solar flares, and you have yet smaller and yet smaller and yet smaller. And now, with these high-resolution images, we, we have made a, a new step towards the small end. So what we're seeing is, is incredibly small solar flares. That's what it looks like. And so it was, it was jokingly called campfires, just to illustrate how small they are. Right. But the, the smallest of them are still uh, two pixels in our images, which is like a few hundred kilometer, kilometers. So they're, they're not actually campfire sized, of course. <laughs> but mm -hmm. they, they are really tiny as compared to the big flares. They are perhaps a billion times smaller. Interesting stuff. I don't have all the time in the world, Mr. Bergmans, but I would be very curious to know what, if anything, has been a big surprise for you and your team so far, so early into the mission. Um, the the uh, so the the campfires that we image now, that part of the sun, that is called the the quiet corona. Uh, quiet because nothing is supposed to happen there. There are no big active regions. There are no big flares. It's it's meant to be dead boring. We were just pointing at that location because we were doing some technical tests and we, we had to take a picture. And so the, the big surprise is that even in that boring, dead corner of the sun, there is so much activity going on. It's, it's not only all those campfires that we see all over the place, but there are like uh, all kinds of phenomena. All things are moving. There is nothing quiet about it. 
So the surprise is that it has been so dynamic and so diverse, even in the quietest corner that we could think of, of the sun. So imagine what it's going to be when we look at the, the big active regions, when the sun is really active. That's going to be amazing, I think. I, I would think so. If you absolutely d- deliberately found what you thought was going to be the most boring quadrant to look at, and it turns it turns <laughs> out to be incredibly active. If, right. Imagine what the active yeah. stuff is going to look like. David, thank you very much for doing this. It's a real pleasure to have you on the program, sir. And if you if you don't mind, we'll we'll keep in touch with you as this uh, solar orbiter project continues and and get some updates. That would be lovely for from our end. Is that okay? That's very much okay. I would be very pleased. Thank you for this. David Bergman's principal investigator for the Extreme Ultraviolet Imager, all part of the Solar Orbiter, joining us today from the Royal Observatory of Belgium in Brussels. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.